0: Hey, I want to start with uh, looking at Luke 1 today is where we're going. Luke 1, 46 to 55. You kind of feel this momentum building as we go through Luke 1, right? It's kind of building towards Christmas and excitement and all these great things happening. And then we get to this passage in Luke 1, which is Mary responding to Elizabeth and so this is often called the Magnificat. It's, it's uh, Mary's song of praise. So if you don't mind, staying with me and let's read through this together. And Mary said, "'My soul exalts the Lord, "'and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, "'for he has had regard for the humble state "'of his bondservant. "'For behold, from now on, "'all generations will call me blessed.'" For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is to generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants. Father, we're so grateful for this message, this word, this opportunity to get a glimpse of a response to you, to what you do, to your grace. And so, Father, we just ask that your spirit fills this space, the space between my mouth where the words come out that are solely intended to to glorify you and present your truth and the ears that hear these words. Let only what passes through to be heard be of you, of truth, and the, the glory of your Son. We just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen and you can have a seat. So I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but next Sunday is Christmas. What? Yep. Next Sunday is Christmas. Have you guys finished your shopping? No. Based on the traffic, going to Walmart, you haven't. Um, and so here's what I know is gonna happen this week. All of us guys in the room, we're gonna be running around trying to find not the perfect gift, but the adequate gift. Big difference. We're going to try to find that gift that says something other than, I waited until the last minute to find this mostly useless and unwanted thing for you, but I got you something so I feel better about myself. So that, those are the gifts we're looking for that say anything other than that. We're, we're, we'll be content with But you know the gifts that cause me anxiety every year or used to, not so much anymore. It's not the gifts that I have to buy for Doreen and our kids that cause me anxiety. It's the gifts that others give us that were unexpected. And I see some heads nodding. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's like, yeah, I hate that. Somebody shows up at your house and they bring you something and you are not expecting it. And now you're in that spot of, okay, I got to do something here. <laughs> I can't just receive this. I got I to gotta give something back. So no lie. We used to do this. We used to. So like the day after Christmas, Dream would go like to Target and Walmart and all the places and buy up all the stuff that's on sale. And then we'd take stuff that would make good generic gifts for anyone, wrap them, like December 26th so that we have them for next December when somebody shows up with that unexpected gift. So we got these gifts stashed in the house, wrapped with no tag on them. Somebody comes by and goes, oh, I was just thinking about you guys. I got you something. Great, here, we have something for you too. And so we, we go into the, the closet. We've, we've gotten past that. We finally figured out that we don't have to do that. I'm going to explain to you how we got past that. But here's why we all feel that. That resonates with us, right? Somebody gives you a gift. You, you feel like you've got to give something back. It resonates with us because we want to be someone who is reciprocating. We don't want to be receivers. We want to be givers. And it's a struggle because I'd far more prefer to be a giver than a receiver. We have to become healthy receivers. It's hard to be a healthy receiver because we believe that we want to have some sway and some power and some authority and some control, which as a receiver, that all goes out the window. And that's why receiving is hard because it reminds me that I'm needy. It reminds me that I don't have everything all together, that I'm not fully self-reliant. Does that resonate with any of you? Oh, you gave me a gift. Well, I must be in need of something. And I think that sense comes from our fallen nature. I think what happens is we begin to go back to that place where our fallen nature wells up. And it actually comes from all the way back in the garden, from that moment when Satan told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the fruit, they would be like what? Like God. If you eat this, you'll be like God. We all struggle with that illusion of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-determination and that we don't have any need because of that desire to be like God we figure if I can just get past the the place of needing anything, or I can get to the place of being a giver I don't need to receive, then that thing inside me that came with the fall that says you really wanna be like God will find some satisfaction. And because of that, because of that fall, it's a struggle that makes grace scandalous. Grace is a scandal to us because we're a product of that fall, of that desire to be like God, to be able to say, I have everything I need, I'm in need of nothing. And when an unexpected gift shows up from an unexpected giver, it triggers all that. And we go, oh, I have to reciprocate. I can't just receive by grace, I have to give something back. Because everything in us pushes back against grace. Everything in us says, don't be needy, don't be dependent. You've got to earn everything. If you give me a gift and I don't give you one back, I didn't earn that gift. It creates a power differential that we don't like because I want to be like God. Have no need. Be in control. And here's the deal. Satan knew that he could make grace at least uncomfortable to my ego then I may never allow myself to receive God's grace in Jesus. And that was his plan. That's why he said, if you eat this, you'll be like God. He knew that once I decided I'm going to pursue this life of being like God, I will become more comfortable on the treadmill of performance than I am resting in God's ocean of grace. And that was his plan. And that's what he did. And that's what we see today. What we need to realize is that only an out and out revolution can resolve this scandal of grace in our lives. And then the second thing we need to see today is that Mary was actually an insurrectionist. She was inviting every one of us to join her as revolutionaries against the typical world systems and powers. That's the invitation of these passages in Scripture. Now, before you run out and grab pitchforks and torches and march off to Toronto or Ottawa, let me finish. Let me finish before we take that step. Because here's the deal. Our first revolutionary act is to resolve the scandal of grace. The revolution we're invited into starts when we resolve that scandal And that scandal of grace is simply this. It's the scandal of receiving without earning anything. It's the scandal of a gift given that demands no gift in return. That scandal is the second greatest scandal in the Christmas story. Next week on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the greatest scandal. And I just want to say, if you're watching online, Christmas Eve is a great time to come back. Just come back for one service and check it out. As you saw, we have services at 4 and 5.30 that are family friendly, an eight o'clock candlelight service, and, and the, the opportunity to come back at Christmas Eve is great. If you just want to come back, you've been online for a while, come back and check it out. And here's the other thing. I believe that we, when we address this greatest scandal next Sunday, next Saturday on Christmas Eve and Sunday morning, it may actually be life-changing for many of us. Once we resolve that last scandal that we're gonna talk about next week, it could change the world. But this scandal of grace is necessary to resolve before we can address that scandal that we're gonna talk about next week. And the reason that grace is a scandal is because it hits at the core of our fallen nature Listen to this. John Wesley, the great hymn writer and founder of Methodism said this. Nothing is more repugnant to capable and reasonable people than grace. Nothing is more repugnant to capable and reasonable people than grace. That is the lie of Satan in the garden. The lie of you will be like God. Because when we decide we want to be like God, the first thing we decide is I am capable and I am reasonable. And that's woven into our fallen nature. It's there. There's nothing we can do about it short of being born again. That's the only way this can be resolved. And so whether grace comes as an unexpected gift, or it comes as the Holy Spirit working in my life, we prefer to rely on our own capabilities, our own reason. And so grace becomes repugnant. And so to resolve this scandal of grace, we have to first rec- recognize the revolutionary nature of Mary 's words in Luke 1 46 to 55. This has been lost on the church over the decades and centuries. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian said about the uh, Magnificat shortly before he was executed by Nazis in 1933. This is what he said about these words of Mary. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Mary's words in this song have actually been banned in places in the world. There was a time in India, Argentina, Guatemala, where these words were banned. You could not speak these words in public because the governments and authorities that were the ruling powers thought that these words could incite the poor and the oppressed to revolution. Think about that. Ruling powers seeking to maintain their grip on people, found the 2,000-year-old words from a pregnant Palestinian teenager too powerful to let people speak in public. Think about that. Do you think she was starting a revolution? I think she was. I think she was. The words are revolutionary. Listen to this. Cast down the mighty. Send the rich away empty. Fill the hungry. Lift the lowly. Mary's words are dangerous to worldly systems and worldly power structures and worldly authorities. These words are revolutionary. I agree that these words are revolutionary. I also agree that the world needs a revolution in our power structures and systems of rule. I don't think any of us would deny that. We see the news. We see all these things happening that make our stomachs cringe. And I agree that Mary was actually inciting a revolution, but maybe not the way some might like to think. Revolutions of systems and authorities and governments and powers don't seem to work, do they? We've seen it. The world's history is overrun with revolutions. And what usually happens? Usually it's just a matter of time before the revolutionary becomes the new oppressor. It's just a matter of time. Why is it that way? Because the revolution we need, the one that Mary's words invite us into, is not a revolution of government, but of hearts. That's the revolution she invites us into. It's a revolution of grace that transforms us. Not a revolution of governments that somehow all of us learn to act right. Consider this. What would governments and corporations and systems look like if they were run by men and women who had experienced this revolution of grace? What would our economic and power structures look like if they were ruled by people who were ruled by grace? How could hunger and crime and violence and deception and greed stand in a world inhabited by people who had experienced grace, sought to share grace, and lived by grace? See, that's the scandal. Mary's words give us a glimpse of the scandalous nature of God's plan. And here's the scandal. The scandal of God's grace is this to create a people that he would call his own, whose hearts and minds are governed by grace instead of the systems of the world. Mary's words were dangerous to the systems of the world because they misread them. They thought she was talking about them, and in reality, she was talking about us. And why hasn't this revolution happened yet? Why aren't we seeing the proud scattered, the powerful thrown down, the hungry filled, the humble exalted, and the greedy defeated? Because our fallen egos won't let grace fully reign in our hearts and minds. Once grace takes over, I have to relinquish the self. Because I want to earn what I receive and here's why I want to earn what I receive. Because when I earn something, I protect my ego. When I've done something, I protect that ego. Being a receiver just doesn't align with being like God. Not in my mind. And Mary's words resolve this issue of being a receiver and and letting go of the ego that wants to be like God. Like God, here's why. Because her song is not about Mary at all. Two words show up over and over and over again in her song. The two words are, He has. Mary's song is not about who she is, it's not about what makes her the kind of person God can use, it's not about her adequacy, her worth, it's not even about her willingness. It's about, He has. He has is simply another way to say grace. He has regard for her humility. He has done great things for her. He has done mighty deeds. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has sent the rich away. He has given. He has spoken. Do you see the revolution in all that? Do you see who is doing it all? It's God. It's not about Mary. These revolutionary words of Mary actually align perfectly with the revolutionary words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 5.5. And the words he spoke in Matthew 5.5 are still revolutionary to our culture. You'll see as soon as I read them, listen to this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's revolutionary to our culture. Why is that revolutionary? Because the last people we think are going to get what they want in this world are the meek. Blessed are the go-getters. Blessed are the takers. Blessed are the superstars. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who will let nothing stand in their way so that they may achieve what they want regardless of what it does for anybody else or to anybody else. That's our beatitude. That's our culture, isn't it? These words of Jesus are revolutionary because he's saying blessed are the meek. You want the whole world? Be nothing. Be nobody. And we have to understand what meekness is. Meekness isn't making yourself a doormat, but it's saying I have power and I could exercise it for my own ends, but I won't. I'll trust God. I don't need to throw the punch. I don't need to take over. I don't need to steer everything. I can let God do what he will because he has. It's the same message that Mary gave in the Magnificat that Jesus gives in Matthew 5.5. 5. What he's saying is this, focus on being a gentle and kind receiver. Not a gentle and kind giver, but a gentle and kind receiver. And God will give you everything that he is Notice I didn't say everything he has. I said everything he is. His desire is to make me like him. Not to give me everything I think I want. And we have to embrace the scandal of grace to become the people God wants us to be and live the lives he longs for us to live. Listen to these words. A gentleman named William Willimon wrote these. We prefer to think of ourselves as givers, powerful, competent, self-sufficient, capable people whose goodness motivates us to employ some of our power, competence, and gifts to benefit the less fortunate. Anybody else ever feel that? I love thinking of myself that way. Makes me a great giver. The problem with grace is I don't need to be a giver to experience grace, I need to be a receiver. This goes against that, I wanna earn it. So we strive and work, and that slowly diminishes our awareness of God in our lives, of God's grace in our lives. We begin to forget that He has, and it starts to become an I will. And you know where that leads? Spiritual anxiety. Leaves us sitting alone wondering if God even cares for me because I haven't done enough for Him. Anybody ever felt that? Asking, God, have I worked hard enough for You? Have I advanced Your kingdom far enough so that I can find a little peace in this or a little comfort in that? Here's the revolution that Mary invites us into. It's to see that I am needy. That doesn't seem like a revolution to you. You can see me and you know that I'm needy in a variety of ways. But I need to come to that realization for myself to see that I'm needy and so that I can then live in the he has of Mary's words here in the Magnificat, not in the I have of my fallen nature. Mary's words are meant to start a revolution, a revolution in my heart and my mind with me as the revolutionary fighting against the government and rule of me as the authority in my life. Mary's revolution demands that I recognize I am both the revolutionary and the power that must be overthrown. That's the revolution she invites us into. No need to storm Toronto or Ottawa. Storm your prayer closet. Storm that guy, that girl who's with you all day long. And so here's what happens. As I overthrow the government of self in me, Jesus takes the throne and rules over my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. He does everything Mary said in in these verses in Luke 1. He scatters me in my pride. I try to do things in pride, they don't work. He brings me down when I try to rule my world for my own glory and gain. He sends me away empty when all I'm concerned about is what makes me rich. He exalts me when I humble myself before Him. He fills me with good things when I am hungry for the good. He gives me help when I desire to live in his mercy. He speaks to my heart when my pride shuts up. That's the revolution. The revolution of grace that caused Mary to burst out in this song is not about overthrowing the world. It's about overthrowing my world. It's an interior one. It's a revolution of transformation of redeemed hearts and minds actually living in and by and for God's grace. It's a revolution that creates disciples, not mercenaries. It creates apprentices to Jesus, not militias. And that's scandalous. Scandalous to our world system. There's a rabbi named Michael Goldberg, and he was talking about um, reading the, the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel, and this is what he said. He said that as a Jew, he was impressed in reading Matthew's account of the nativity by how utterly passive the actors are. He said as a Jew, the exodus is my basis of faith. It's a story of how God liberated the chosen people by using special people like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And then he goes on to say that the Christmas story implies that what God wants to do for us is so strange, so beyond the bounds of human effort and striving that God must resort to utterly unnatural and supernatural means. I think Rabbi Goldberg was right. I think he's absolutely right. The scandal of grace denies, defies human logic. It's unnatural to the natural order of things. It's passively received, but actively lived out, and is all about the one bestowing it, not the one receiving it. See, unexpected gifts made me uncomfortable because I made it all about me, not the giver. That's why I felt the need to reciprocate. Mary's making the gift of grace all about the giver in this song. The giver is the gift. The God who gives us every good and perfect gift, who gives us the gift of grace, is himself the gift. The giver is the gift. You, each and every one of us, needs to become a revolutionary a revolutionary who is living by grace and understands that because the giver is the gift, then all is grace. And no, that's counterintuitive. Let me explain that a little bit. That means that every breath, every joy and sorrow, every pleasure and pain is grace. I want to read you one more quote from William Willimon. This is often the way God loves us. With gifts we thought we didn't need, which transform us into people we don't necessarily want to be. Grace gives us what we don't know we need to make us into who we never thought we could be. God's vision of us is so far beyond what we could ever think in our own natural state and strength once we realize the giver is the gift, God himself is the gift, which means that everything that comes into my life is grace because everything draws me closer to the gift. Who is the giver? That's what the revolution of grace is. That's what the scandal is. And once we get this, once we understand this, guess what happens? We begin to live the kind of life that Romans 8.28 talks about. Anybody ever heard Christians quote that verse? Right? The car breaks down. Well, what you need to know is that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called to His purpose. You lost your job? Romans 8.28. No food in the house? Romans 8.28. Dr. Collins says it's it's a tumor? Romans 8.28. The verse is true, The way we use it is not. (laughs) Because the truth of this verse is that the giver is the gift. So let me explain it to you. First, I'm going to read it to you totally. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So here's the deal. The giver is the gift. So the good, it talks about here, is intimate relationship with God. So grace moves all things towards making me closer to God, bringing me closer to God. And once I know that all is grace, that's gonna help me to see that everything that happens in my life, in the world, is the all things of Romans eight twenty eight. So if the good is intimate relationship with God, then if all is grace, everything that happens gives me the opportunity to draw closer to God. And so, if everything that happens in life brings me closer to God, then guess what? All is grace. That's the scandal of grace. It invites me to be a revolutionary, rebelling against my own rule. The he has of Mary's song makes it clear that grace frees me to receive the gift of God, which is God Himself. Because the giver is the gift. And because of that, all is grace. Do you see that in Mary's song? This is a song about her receiving the gift of Christ and then sharing that gift with the world. You see how Mary's song resolves this scandal of grace that makes me feel as if if you bring me something, I better make sure I have something to reciprocate. Now, I'm going to point out that I've overcome that. So, if any of you are thinking, hey, coming in Monday so I can get a present, I won't give you something back. (laughs) Not at this point. (laughs) Maybe next year, but not now. This is about he has, not I have. Her words invite us to join the revolution in our own hearts and minds, to rebel against my authority governing me and let Jesus rule in his rightful place, my heart and my mind. That's what will change the world. Christians letting Jesus rule in their own lives and then living those lives out for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Now, we have a revolution blurring. We have a revolution that's rising up. Enough of us do that, and everything's different. And so here's what I want to invite you to this week. I want to invite you into the practice of seeing everything as grace. View every relationship, every trial, every bit of family drama, every burnt turkey, every ugly sweater, every pair of socks from Aunt Edna as grace. Let grace, God working in you and on you, through others and circumstances, rule your life this Christmas week. The traffic is grace. Somebody getting the last of that perfect toy that your child wants? Two things it's grace, and why'd you wait so long? Everything is grace. This week, just simply receive whatever comes whether it's wrapped up under a Christmas tree or shows up as some hardship or trial, just receive it as God working in you and on you through others and circumstances. If enough of us do that, Christmas will be so joyful. Be joyous for all of us. You know, there's a, a great movie I'm sure some of you have seen it, called Saving Private Ryan. Has anybody seen that movie? Fantastic movie. It's brutal to watch because it's so realistic. At the end, Matt Damon's character is old and he's all grown up and he's in the cemetery at Normandy and he's talking with his wife and he's looking at this strange grave, the name she doesn't recognize. And he looks at her and he goes, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. There's tears streaming down his face. And she's like, oh, you're a wonderful man, you're a great man, you're a good man. This is, in that moment, the character that was Matt Damon early in the movie, maybe in his 20s. Now here he is old, near the end of his life, and he wants one answer. He wants somebody to tell him he is a good man. Why does he want that? Because when you go back earlier in the movie, as Tom Hanks' character is sitting next to him on a bridge dying, he looks up at Matt Damon and says two words. You remember those two words? Earn this. Earn this. And we look at that and we go, and oh my gosh, this is so inspiring. This is so awesome. I saw churches preach on that scene. And what really happened in that moment is Tom Hanks gave Matt Damon a burden to carry his whole life that he could not carry, that he would never satisfy. And hence, we get to the end of his life, he's at a grave where he's talking to his wife and begging her to affirm to him he did it. He earned it. Can I suggest to you that in the biblical narrative, in Mary's song, here's what's happening. Satan is that Tom Hanks character. And he's whispered into our fallen nature all our lives, earn this, earn this. And we get older in our faith and we want somebody to come up and say, you earned it, you earned God's grace, you earned this salvation, which is absolutely impossible to do because grace is opposed to earning. And so we sit in a cemetery of broken dreams and what could have beens, waiting for somebody to come to us and go, you're a good man, you're a good woman. Jesus would be a fool not to want you. Look how wonderful you are. Certainly God will take you in. Look how great you've been. And the reality is, the revolution that Mary invites us into is a revolution to say he has. So when Satan comes and says, earn this, I could look at him and go, he has. When Satan comes and says, live this way, I can go, he has. And it frees us from all that. That's the burden of Christmas for many of us. That's why it's so hard to receive. Because we're not healthy givers. We're not healthy receivers. We give because we think we earn something in it, and as soon as we receive, we find a way to make it about us. Mary invites us into resting in the scandal of grace that makes us healthy givers, we give for the glory of God and the benefit of others, and healthy receivers, I can take everything as grace. This week, as you walk through the chaos of the holidays, the family members who drive you nuts, the food that just isn't always right, the gifts that don't seem to resonate, just take it all as grace. Receive it all as grace so that you become a healthy giver, but also a healthy receiver. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful to you, God. We're grateful that you want to start a revolution in our hearts and minds here today, that you want us to be revolutionaries who will overthrow the powers and the rulers of our own lives, ourselves, that we'll knock down those strongholds, those things that tell us It's about what I have done, not what you have done. And so, Father, let us just live the life that Mary invites us into of he has. You have, God. And so let us rest in that in all things. And we just ask that in Jesus' name, amen.